Good morning, Four Corners. Blessing to be here to worship our God with you today. As <clears throat> many of you are aware, <clears throat> the city of Noonan, as Mark alluded to in his prayer, is bracing itself for a white supremacist neo-Nazi rally to be held really right on our back porch. Uh, not literally, but uh, essentially Greenville Street Park, right that way, this coming Saturday. And here we are, looking at the dignity of man in the book of Genesis, being reminded very clearly that racism of any kind, of any form, whether subtle or overt, has no place among those who embrace a biblical worldview, or for that matter, the God of the Bible. Those who know and love and embrace the God who wrote this book by His Spirit, in them there is no place for racism or racial supremacy. Last week we discussed the origin of man, and I cited this verse from Acts 17, verse 26. It says this, And he made from one man, this is Paul talking to the Athenians, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. How often we as human beings need to be reminded of this truth that we all go back to Adam. Every single one of us goes back ultimately to Adam. And that tells us that every single one of us is made in the image of God. Regardless of race, regardless of one's nation or language or tribe, we are all made in God's image. So we see a massive blow as we sort of prepare, as the city prepares for what is going to come Saturday. Hopefully it will not be a big ordeal. But as the city prepares for this, we see here in our local church, through God's word, a massive blow to racism in God's creation account. But this comes into even greater focus when we consider redemption. We don't have to go very far. We come to Genesis 12, 3, and what does God say to Abram? We'll get there eventually. He promises God this, I will bless those who bless you, or God promises Abram this, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And listen, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We come to know in the New Testament it's through his seed, through his offspring, his descendant, the Christ. Through him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Jesus, when he comes in his incarnation and he uh, dies on the cross and is raised from the dead and he goes and sends out his disciples, what does he tell them? Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, all peoples. And we know that the end result of that, which is coming, not here yet, but it's coming, is what we see in Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10, where it says, after this I looked, and behold, a great 
multitude. This is heaven. This is the end. This is what all of God's purposes in the world today are moving towards a great multitude that no one could number. Don't even try. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All peoples worshiping our God together without racial distinction. This is the worldview of the Bible. This is the worldview that must guide any person who claims to bear the name of Christ. This is the worldview that we are seeking to spread as a church, as ambassadors of reconciliation, that God has come in Christ and he has reconciled people to himself and in Christ he reconciles people of all kinds, of all races, of all nations and tongues. He reconciles all people in himself. One new man, breaking down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, that distinction there in the first century as Paul tells us, in Ephesians. This is the worldview that we are seeking to spread everywhere we go. And let me tell you this. If your worldview differs from this, then you are an enemy of God's purposes in the world. It doesn't matter where we come from. It doesn't matter what we saw and heard and learned from our parents or the, 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 the history, the traditions of our geographical location. These things are all secondary. They're underneath our identity. In Christ. So those who belong to Christ are those who are in line with God's saving purposes of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation throughout the world. And this is the message of the church, regardless of race. And so this is the message this week, I think, that we should have heavy upon our hearts. And this is the message that should be in our speech as we speak gently and with love being salt and light in the world. So, as I mentioned last week, we looked at the origin of man. That was our topic last week, the origin of man, which just out of that flows very nicely, this understanding of, of human dignity. We looked at Genesis 2, 4 to 7, as we're continuing in our series through Genesis. And today we come to man in the garden. That will be our topic for today. The sermon is entitled, The Man in His Home. And so go ahead, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 2, verses 8 to 17. Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 to 17. The man in his home. <clears throat> Give you a second to get there. And when you do, if you will, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy Inerrant word. What I'm going to do is start at verse 4, just so you have the, the, the whole picture there, but we'll read through verse 17. <clears throat> These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, 
and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. That's what we looked at last week, those verses 4 to 7. Today we'll pick up in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. If you will, go ahead and be seated. This is God's word, and I hope that's, that we're here to hear from the Lord through His word being preached, prayed, sung, imaged there through the Lord's Supper as Christ's gospel is imaged through that ordinance of the church. So let's pray and ask for God's help this morning. Let's pray as we, as we have to all the time. Let's pray and ask God to give us focus and help us to, to be open as He leads us, as He convicts us of our sin, and as He, as he increases our faith as he does his work. And and hear this, God wants to do his work today. God is about doing his work in us. We're not just here to kind of get through church and go on and do the rest of our day, but we're here to meet with God. And so the prayer is that that's what we will do from the heart, from the mind, as we're sharply in his presence this morning. So let's ask that we will do that, that God will do this in us. Our Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to be here together today to worship you. Father, we pray that your name would be hallowed. We pray that the name of your son would be hallowed. We pray that the gospel would be hallowed in our hearts, that we would come to a deeper love of the gospel, that we would come to see more clearly who you are, going all the way back to when you made human beings. Father, help us to begin to see ourselves and our world more in line with our origins as we look at this wonderful portion of your word. Father, thank you even as we hear the rain on the building that we are reminded that you are a sovereign God who controls all the elements of our world, that you control everything and you are providentially at work in our lives bringing about your kingdom purposes. So Father, we ask that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that your kingdom would come here in this place, God, that Christ would reign more and more supreme over the idols of our hearts, that, that Christ would come to reign in new hearts. 
Father, we know that this comes only by your grace, so we ask for that this morning. Be merciful to us, O God. We can't even begin to explore the depths of our sinfulness. And so we ask that you would just begin anew today to show us the sins of our hearts, that we might turn from them and turn to you, the living God, in faith, in trust. Father, we pray that you would provide what we need in our lives, that we would, even at this moment, take all the worries in our minds, that we would put them at your feet and trust you. As Mark prayed, many worries, Father, are represented here. Many, many things going on in our lives, health issues, money issues, issues with jobs, issues with family members, relationships, many things that could weigh us down and distract us today. Father, would we not let it be? Would you help us to focus and to grow through your word and help us trust that you will give us our daily bread? Father, we pray for protection against the evil one. We pray that you would forgive us of our sins, and we ask that his purposes this morning, Satan's purposes, just as he had purposes in the garden, he has purposes here today, and we pray that his purposes would be thwarted by you, God, that you would sovereignly oversee this place, and you would prevent him from drawing us away from your truth. God, we love you. We thank you that we get to be here together, sitting under your word. Would you teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So there are three things as we think about the man in his home, the first man in his home, three things that I want you to consider that we need to look at or notice as we look at these, as we go through these verses. Placement with plenty, we see that. We see rest with responsibility, and we see command with consequence. Placement with plenty, rest with responsibility, and command with consequence. So let's look at the first of those, placement with plenty. I want you to go back with me to verses 8 to 14. I want to read through those quickly just so we have them very clearly in focus. Placement with plenty. Look at verses 8 to 14. It says this, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this little bit about rivers, which starts in verse 10, some think it's kind of a little bit of a a detour. You're kind of going away. You're you're taking a little break from the narrative. But but it, it very much functions with everything else that we see in those preceding verses. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So here we see that immediately after God formed man, and we talked last week about how God took the dust of the earth and the dust of the ground and he breathed into man the breath of life face to face. And and we get their very anthropomorphic language. We get God being described very much in human terms. We know that God does not have a body, but we know that God is intimate there with Adam. And so what that looked like for God to take the dust and form it and for him to breathe into Adam 
the breath of life. We don't know, but we're given this description so as to communicate to us two major things. And that is that the creation of man is done directly. It's done as a special thing and it's done intimately. And of course, it's done from the dust that humbles us and and gives us a sense of solidarity with the earth. We look out at the earth that we're to oversee, that we are, we are to, to be over as rulers on the earth, royal representatives of God, made in his image. And we begin to understand that we have a, really a, a relationship with the inanimate. We have a relationship even with the earth in that we come from it and that all the other creatures too were sculpted up from the dust of the ground. As God said, let the earth give rise to these creatures. So there's a sense of solidarity even that we have with the earth and with animals. So we see that immediately after God did this, he made a home for him and then placed him in that home. And that tells us that the first man is not left to wonder the newly formed earth. God didn't just sculpt him, breathe into him the breath of life, say, okay, there you go, have fun. Just get about life. That's not how God did it. The text is very clear that God was overseeing his placement. God placed him. He was not left to construct a home for himself. It's not like you see with some of these shows where people are dropped off in some wilderness place or some desert island and they have to just go about life and figure it all out. God, of course, gave man reason. He gave man the ability to to think and to problem solve and, and to create. And so man, I'm sure, could have gone about the business of making himself a place That's not how it went down. God did not leave him to that. He made a place for him, and then he took him and put him in it. He was cared for in every way by his creator. From the moment that God began to sculpt him and to form him, and then placing him in this this location, in this home, God expressed the deepest intimate care for this special creature. This home is a garden, an enclosed and uniquely planted place, filled, the text tells us, with trees. This garden is said to be in Eden, which tells us that Eden is probably a larger geographical area. So we might, before this point, have been tempted to think of that Eden is the garden, so it is, it is called the Garden of Eden throughout the Bible. But here we see that it is a garden in an area known as Eden. So there's the larger area, and within that, God plants this garden. And this area, which is in this garden, which is in Eden, is said to be in the east, which could mean east of the Sinai or east of Canaan. So it could be east from where Moses is writing as he's in the Sinai with the children of Israel there in the wilderness. Or it could be east from the vantage point of Canaan, which is the promised land, as the people would come into the promised land, which God had told Abraham that they would have as a place for them. Either way, we're talking about something that is east of this And the mention of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in verse 14 tells us that Eden was likely somewhere in Mesopotamia. Ancient Mesopotamia is essentially the area in and around modern-day Iraq. So this is, generally speaking, the area where Eden was. This was the one place in all the earth that was uniquely prepared For the first humans. We know that God's creation at this point as a whole was very good. 
it would have been a beautiful place everywhere you looked. It was an incredible creation, untainted by the effects of sin, untainted by the effects of the, of, of the sin of Adam in the garden as we begin to see the groaning of creation that Paul talks about in Romans 8, that the creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. So this is a creation without all of that groaning. Groaning. This is a creation without the fall. But what we see is even within the midst of all of this beauty, God plants a very special place for this crown of his creation. And what we need to see here at this point is that God's provision is abundant. So what do we see in these verses that God gives Adam in the garden? First, we see that he gives them pleasure. God gives man now, and we'll see woman coming into the scene at the end of chapter 2. God gives them pleasure. It says that the garden is filled with every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Everywhere Adam looked, whether he looked to the left, the right, in front of him, behind him, everywhere Adam looked, he saw beautiful trees filled with fruit. Can't even imagine that. I mean, I've been to some places, uh, some wooded areas that are incredibly beautiful and seen, you have, you've seen places that you thought, man, this, if this is what heaven is like, the new heaven, this is going to be great. I particularly like wooded areas. That's kind of my idea of heaven is a, a place, a beautiful place where there's woods and these large trees and waterfalls and all of that. Maybe you have a different idea in mind. But everywhere Adam looked, this is what he saw, beautiful trees with delicious fruit. So we see that God gives them pleasure. He gives them life. Among these trees is the tree of life. And this tree of life is meant to be the physical means whereby God would sustain Adam and Eve in immortality. So we know that it is not intrinsic to the first humans to have immortality. Immortality, we're told in 1 Timothy 6.16, is an attribute only of God. That God alone is immortal. So it's not intrinsic to man and woman, even in the Garden of Eden, to be immortal. But God set up as the giver of life, God set up this means whereby human beings would be able to perpetuate their existence on the earth. That's what's going on with the tree of life. We know that because at the end of chapter 3, God puts angels, cherubim, at the entrance to the garden so that they are not able to enter back in lest they take of the tree of life and live on. So we see that God gives them life. He gives them pleasure. He gives them life. He gives them a well-watered home. So these verses that seem to be a little bit of an excursion away from the main point actually appear when you read them in context to make much sense. Verses 10 to 14 describe what? A flow of water coming up in Eden, going through the garden, and then dividing into four rivers. Well, what does that tell us? Just think about it like this. If a river is strong enough to go through a place and then divide and feed four rivers, it is a powerful, abundant flow of water. 
And so what we're meant to see here is not just all of the beautiful trees with all of the delicious fruit, but we're meant to see that God is sustaining this with everything that it needs in order to continue bearing this fruit for man in perpetuity from now on. This is the same kind of image that we get in Psalm 1. Where we, that, that wonderful passage of scripture that was so important, for example, to Martin Luther, talks about uh, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delights in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. What does it say he's like? He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And that's exactly what we have in the garden. We have these trees that are giving fruit at the right time because they are well watered. We also know this from a little later in Genesis, Genesis 13, 10, where it says, and Lot lifted up his eyes. So remember Abraham and Lot are together. Lot is his nephew and the servants of Abraham and the servants of Lot can't get along. They're they're arguing with each other. And so it's clear that Abraham's crew needs to go one direction. Lot's crew needs to go another direction. So Abraham, of course, I think it's a little subtle detail, trusting the promises of God, not needing to secure his own future, says, Lot, you choose. You choose where you want to go. And it says in Genesis 13, 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. That tells us that the the readers of Genesis 2 are meant to read verses 10 to 14 and say, well watered, this place is taken care of. Now it's difficult to identify and locate these rivers, so maybe you're thinking, okay, let's find where Eden is on the map. And I can imagine, you know, part of me wondered, as I was preparing for this sermon, I wondered if after, I mean, it had to have happened, it had to have happened, that after Adam between Adam and Eve and the flood, some sinful soul, as everyone was, decides he's going to venture back. He's going to try to maybe find his way back to Eden and get zapped by a cherubim. I don't know. I don't know that's the case. I just, by a cherub. I don't know that that's the case, but perhaps during that time, there were people who decided they would go back. Didn't like the thorns and the thistles, didn't like the, the rough living and all of that, so they would try to find their way back to the garden, and of course we know that God put cherubim there to the special glorious angels to guard the way to the tree of life. But it's difficult now for us to have any kind of idea of where the Garden of Eden was and where these, what, these, what these rivers even are, where they were because of the flood. It would be difficult to go back and to, to pair up the geography today with the geography then, given the fact that all of that area was flooded, entirely flooded. In the great flood. And besides, some of these rivers are kind of unidentifiable. You just, you just really can't, two of them, the Pishon and the Gihon, it's difficult to determine what exactly these rivers are. But we do know that the Tigris and the Euphrates, well-known rivers throughout the world, right there in Mesopotamia. So that at least gives us a general idea of where the Garden of Eden was. It was in the area of Mesopotamia. Would you be able to get there, to na- get there today? No, probably not probably destroyed by the flood. So these are the things that God gives. He gives this well-watered place with life. He gives pleasure. 
but he also gives them his presence. Now, we tend to think about God's presence being in the garden a little later when it says that God walked in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. But here we have, I think, a few clues that already begin to tell us that God is present with his people in the garden. Many have pointed out parallels between the description of the garden and the tabernacle where God met with his people, primarily with the mention of gold and precious stones. So why in the world does the text say something about there being gold there? And the gold is good. And there are these precious stones, delium and onyx, and it's even a little bit unclear uh, what exactly these stones are. Some have understood onyx to be lapis lazuli or, or another kind of stone. So it's unclear also what the delium exactly is. But what's going on with this language? Why are we being told about this gold or these precious stones? One commentator says this, the point of the description of the garden is to show the glory of God's presence through the beauty of the physical surroundings. And you know what? It's interesting that when we get both to the tabernacle where God comes and dwells with his people and <coughs> to the new heaven and new earth in Revelation 22, what do we see? In Revelation 21 and 22, what do we see? We see jewels. We see gold. We see all of this splendor and beauty of the physical world which is meant to point us to the presence of the glorious God. So even here, in these little details that seem kind of irrelevant to us, we are meant to think in terms of a glorious place where the glorious God meets with his people. So what are some implications for us as we think through this placement with plenty? Adam being placed with all this plentifulness. Well, the first thing we should see is that God is the author or originator, listen to this, of human pleasure and delight. Who created pleasure of every kind? Who created delight and enjoyment? God. God did that. You see, what Satan does is he takes the pleasures God made. He, he takes the human frame that is able to experience pleasures and Satan comes along and makes those little gods that we worship. Or he comes along and says that those don't come from God at all. They must be obtained by one's own ways or one's own efforts. And however we decide to obtain them. We see many pleasure seekers in our world. We see pleasure seeking in our own hearts. But what we need to remember is that the beginning of pleasure is God's gift to Adam. He's the one who gives Adam these initial pleasures. And he's made, he opens up his eyes and he begins to walk around and the first thing that this man experiences is pleasure from the Lord. The second thing we need to consider is that God's love and provision for his people is not basic, but lavish. This is not the bare minimum. It's not as though Adam is camping He's not on a camping trip. He is thoroughly provided for. Lavish provisions and, and gifts to this man. God is making him supremely comfortable and delighted in his garden home. God does not give basically. He gives lavishly. 
And this is one of the reasons when we read of his salvation in Ephesians chapter 2, we see that God, we see all this language of his love and his mercy and his kindness toward us, toward us. That God, in creating us and in saving us, does not just give a basic kind of thing, he gives a lavish gift. Ultimately, he gives himself. Another thing we should see, another implication of this passage is that this home points us to our future home. Every Christian who reads Genesis 2 should read it with longing. Not just longing, but hopeful longing. Not, not the kind of longing that's melancholic and sad, looking back to what we lost and what could have been, but a kind of hopeful longing for what is going to come for each of us in Christ, that, that it is certain and it is sure that we will have a home. I mean, Jesus says in John 14, 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Where's Christ going to be? Just a few chapters later, what does he ask the Father? <coughs> Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world began. That's where he's at. And that's what he brings with him when he comes, his glory and everything that he's made for us, that he's prepared for us, our future eternal home that's just around the corner for every Christian is in splendor and glory. It is to reign with Christ. It is to experience him in his glory and to be glorified in his presence. So this home should point us with great hope to our future home. Paul prays in Romans 15. It says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. With all joy and peace in believing. So that your hope might abound. Christian, do you have any hope in this life? As you read Genesis 2, consider paradise is coming back for you in Christ. The author's details finally remind us that Eden was a real place. You know, I'm convinced that so often in Scripture we get all these details because the writer wants us to know he's not making it up. He wants us to know that he's not just inventing some fanciful story. He's telling us what happened. This is a real place with real rivers and real gold and, and real stones and real trees and real fruit and a real serpent, real dust. This happened in space and time. We talked a little bit about that last week, how we can see even from the introduction of this, these are the generations of, that this is a historical referent that goes all throughout Genesis. And we see that here with the language, the details. I think that we see this again very clearly in Genesis 6 where Noah is told to build the ark, and he's given all these details. You know, mythological accounts just don't do that. Just get to the point. It's a big idea. No, there's no big idea. It's, it, it, the details matter because it happened. So we see here placement with plenty. Secondly, we need to look at this rest with responsibility. Look at verse 15. <clears throat> verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So much is packed 
into this little verse. So much is here. On one level, this might appear to be a bit of repetition of what we've already been told in verse 8. So verse 8 tells us, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he, what? He put the man whom he had formed. And so we come to verse 15, and we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. Just a bit of repetition there. We're kind of going on with the story. We had that big excursus with the uh, rivers, and now we're back to, to, the, to that main point in verse 8. Let's, let's just proceed. But here we are given much more information about the nature of man's placement in the garden that we could miss if we don't pay close attention to the details. Although both verses translate the verb with the English word put. So in verse 8, he put him in the garden. Verse 15, he put him in the garden. The Hebrew verb is different in verse 15 where it literally means he rested him, or he caused him to rest. That's the verb that we get in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and rested him in the garden. This gives us a couple of ideas from the Bible as we read, as we see this verb throughout the Bible. It gives us a couple of, uh, of, of ways of understanding it. The first is it gives the idea of being settled in safety. He rested him. He settled him in safety. And we get, that we get an occurrence of this in Genesis 19, 16, back to Lot. So we go back to Lot's experience. Remember, Lot was in Sodom and Gomorrah. He picked the worst possible place he could have picked and uh, lost his wife uh, at, the end of, at the end of the day. And because of that and some other terrible things happened after that that I won't mention now, we'll get to. So he... Um, he goes to this place called Sodom. He goes to, to these, uh, these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, which are destroyed by God because of their wickedness. And we read in Genesis 19, 16, regarding this idea of God resting something. We see this. But he lingered. So Lot's hanging around. He doesn't want to leave. He's so attached to this place. He doesn't want to go. He lingered. So the men, these angels, they seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand the Lord being merciful to him, very patient with Lot, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Same verb, they rested him outside the city. The, the idea there is they settled him in safety outside the city so that they could destroy it. So we see that idea. We also see the idea of being settled in the Lord's presence. And so Deuteronomy 26.10, when talking about the offerings of the first fruits and the tithes that people would bring, says this, that you would pray this, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. And this is the instruction to the person offering a tithe. And you shall set it down, same verb, you shall rest it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. This tells us that even in this, this verb, that we see in verse 15, that God is not just putting man into the garden, but he is resting him there in safety, settled and in his presence. This is the realization of the Sabbath rest because what happens on the next day? God rests and so does man in God's presence. And we are told at the end of verse 15 that this resting of man is not without purpose or work. Man is to work it 
and keep or guard it. One commentator says this, paradise was not a life of leisured unemployment. That's not what's going on in Eden. He's not just sort of there with nothing to do. And we will not be in the new heaven and the new earth just there with nothing to do. And we as Christians should never be just here with nothing to do. It was not a life of leisured unemployment. And I think St. Augustine brings it out, brings all of this together, this rest and responsibility together in this quote. He says, although man was placed in paradise so as to work and guard it, that praiseworthy work was not toilsome. For the work in paradise is quite different from the work on the earth to which he was condemned after the sin. The addition of and to guard it indicated the sort of work it was. For in the tranquility of the happy life, that's the way Augustine is describing the life of Adam. For in the tranquility of the happy life where there is no death, the only work is to guard what you possess. So this is the life that Adam is to live in the garden. But there are some interesting observations to make about these words, work and keep, that go kind of beyond what we see on the surface. So we see rest, put, we need to go a little deeper than that. In that verse, we need to understand it's not just him putting, but it's him resting. And then we come to these latter two words in verse 15, and it's the same. There's some depth here that we need to see and we need to explore. These words, these exact words in Hebrew are used a number of times to describe worship in the tabernacle. So numbers 18, five to six, bring them together. And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary. That's the keep word, the guard word. Shall keep guard over the sanctuary. Eat in there like a sanctuary, like a place where God is worshiped. And over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord, and listen to this, to do service, to do the service of the tent of meeting. So they are to keep the altar, they are to keep the sanctuary, to guard it, and they are to serve, same word, work in the service to the Lord that is worship in the holy place, in the tabernacle. So what we're seeing here is that the reader is meant to see, the Hebrew reader would have seen that there's a relationship between what, what man is doing in the garden and what the people are doing in the sacrificial worship in Jerusalem. Another interesting feature is that these words can also be translated Worship and obey. This first word, work, is translated throughout the Hebrew Bible. Worship, to serve, to worship, to honor God. And the second word, to keep or to guard, is translated various times as to obey God's law. So understood in this way, we could see verse 15, that God rested him in the garden to worship and obey. Yes, God put him in the garden to work in the garden, do the work of a gardener, to keep it, but also, we understand, to worship and obey. One scholar explains it this way, whatever activity the man was to engage in in the garden, and there is no reason to doubt that physical activity was involved, it was described in terms of spiritual service to the Lord. So what does all this tell us? What should we take away from this rest and responsibility. Well, first, this rest reminds us 
that the rest we have and will have perfectly in Christ is coming. It reminds us once again of the truth that we looked at a few weeks ago when we looked at Sabbath rest, that we will rest in Christ. We already rest in Christ. That tells us that even today, even this morning, if you're a Christian, know this, you have safety and you have God's presence. So you may not feel like you're in God's presence right now if you're a Christian. You may be distracted. You may be encumbered with all sorts of things. You might be struggling with temptations. But this is what every Christian needs to know, is that if you are experiencing rest in Christ, and that means any person who is really a Christian, if you're experiencing rest in Christ, you have right now God's safety over your life, that nothing can happen to you that will not turn for your good and his glory. And you have God's presence every moment of every day. You don't need to feel like praying to pray to a hearing God. Even if you don't feel like praying, pray. Because he's with you and he hears you. These tasks of Adam in the garden remind us of the dignity of work. You know, we've talked about that a lot. We talked about that with with God's work. That God worked and those of us in his image are to work also but we see here in, human, in the lives of these first human beings that they are to work. They are doing the work of the garden. And that tells us that work has value and is dignified. It also tells us this. If this rest comes with responsibility, work, and tasks, then listen to this. Rest for us should never mean aimless idleness. Think about that. Idleness is the, what is that phrase? Idleness is the devil's workshop. I don't know if that's it or not, but there's truth to that. We, we think, oh, rest, man, I've worked all day. I'm just gonna sit in front of the TV for an hour and a half. Really? That equals, maybe we, maybe we do wanna watch something on TV. I'm not blasting you for watching TV, but what I am saying is this. Oftentimes, we get to the end of our work and we think, I'm just gonna do nothing. I'm just gonna shut off my brain. I'm gonna shut off my intentionality and rest for me equals aimless idleness. That's folly. That's foolishness. We see the wisdom of rest here, even in Genesis 2. The wisdom of this leisure of Adam, that it is purposeful. Do we spend our leisurely moments with purpose? I think Genesis 2 tells us that we must. We also see that all physical work is done spiritually before the eyes of the Lord in his presence. As we understand that Adam, yes, is to work and to keep, but what is he doing? He is worshiping and obeying. That means that every time he touches a leaf, that every time he rubs his hand against the soil, every time he looks at a beautiful tree, every name he will go on to give an animal, he does that as unto the Lord. He does that in God's presence. Every job, every task, every little project, that he had, he did as unto the Lord. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Every email, every phone call, every drive between places, everything we're doing, we do it heartily as unto the Lord. So we see that man is rested with responsibility and then finally we come to these last two verses that we're gonna look at today, verses 16 to 17, command 
with consequence. Look at those two verses with me. Verses 16 to 17. Then the Lord God said, oh, sorry, read the wrong verse. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We will talk much more about the working out of these verses when we come to chapter 3, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and what's going on with death when we come to Adam's sin in Genesis 3. We'll talk about these things, but for now, I want you to make a few very important observations as we finish up. We come to the end of this passage this morning. <clears throat> the first thing we need to see is that this command implies relationship, communion, and intimacy. God and man are communicating here. This is amazing. This is, in fact, the first command in all of the Bible. But where we read on the surface, don't do that. Where we read on the surface just a command, we ought to read under the surface, under the surface an intimate relationship. Because the speaking of the Lord God, covenant name of God, the speaking of the Lord God to the man, to command him, implies such an intense love relationship between the two of them. You know what this reminds us of? That God's commands are to remind us of his love for his people. God knows us. He knows what's best for us. I mean, isn't that what we do with our children? When we tell them, hey, you can play right here, but don't walk past this point because they might get run over by a truck. We say, you can do this. You can, you can stand right here, but don't, don't jump up and down on that massive red anthill. Because if they jump up and down on that massive red anthill, it's going to be bad. Especially if you're like me, you're allergic to ant bites. It's not going to be good. So we give commands to our children to protect them because we know what's best for them. They don't understand that the cars are coming and might smash into them. They don't understand that they could get bit by 100 ants or that that snake might bite them or that someone could take them when we're not looking. They don't understand these things. So we give them commands because we love them, because we know what's best for them. And that is precisely what this command should remind us of in God. It also tells us that man is under authority. Hear this. This is the problem with our world. Man is under authority. And listen, man was under authority from the moment he breathed. Man has always been under authority. You have always been under authority. I have always been under authority. Man is not an independent entity. His exist existence and actions are governed by God, the ruler. Man is not the ruler. Man is not the measure of all things. Man is not supreme. God is supreme. And it has always been that way. And here's something that we need to remember. All sin is an authority issue. Every sin is an authority issue. Because in every sin is a lack of obedience to God as sovereign king. Every sin is saying, I know what's best for me. 
I'm going to do it my way. I'm an independent, autonomous entity, and I can figure it out with my own reason, which becomes our God. No. God is the sovereign king, and one day every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, God's incarnate son, is Lord over all. On the earth, above the earth, under the earth, everything will submit to Christ the king. So we see here that this has always been the case. We also see that this authority is not tyrannical or mean-spirited. Prohibition, which is what we see here. God prohibits the eating of this particular tree. This prohibition is enveloped by provision and permission. Do you see that in the text? It says, you may surely eat of every tree. It says, though God looks at Adam and says, Adam, you can have it all. It's all yours. Not just you can have it all, but it all exists for you. I made everything for you. You see those beautiful stars that are so far away? I made them for you, Adam. That beautiful fruit over there, I made that for you, Adam. But don't eat that tree, just that one. Everything else is yours. We see this provision and permission everywhere surrounding this one prohibition. God's command essentially is to enjoy everything he's made, but to do so with thankfulness and honor. In other words, the way man is to express thankfulness and honor is to say, God's given me all this, that he says no, so that's no. I'll follow him, I'll obey him, I'll listen to him. And rather than be, rather than be so intoxicated with this one thing that I can't have, I'll focus on all these beautiful, wonderful things that God has so graciously given to me. Thankfulness and honor in all of his enjoyment. That's what God commanded Adam. Finally, as we finish up, notice this. God gives ample information and motivation. We've already seen that Adam is motivated by gratitude. God tells him, look, I give you all of this. And so Adam is to say, thank you, God. I will obey you. Just as we as Christians are to be motivated by the gospel, by the truth that God in Christ has given us salvation, that God put our sins to death on the tree, that Christ took the curse and the wrath for us on the cross. That is to motivate us. We are to be grateful. This is what you find at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, a reminder to the people of Israel. Look, this is what I've done for you. Now obey my law. This is the same thing that God does here in Genesis 3. Remember, Adam, it's all yours. Obey my law. That's what God does for us in all of the epistles of the New Testament. The glories of the gospel. Ephesians, the first half of it, telling us of all the wondrous things that God has done for us in Christ. And then he gives us those ethical instructions. The gospel, we are to be motivated by gratitude for the gospel. But notice this. God gives another motivation, an additional motivation to Adam. He's motivated by consequence. I think we think about raising our children, it's okay to tell our children, if you do this, this is going to happen. I mean, isn't God the Father? Right. He gives us here the model for fatherly discipline and fatherly love. He's totally transparent with Adam. He says, look, if you do this, this is what's going to happen, Adam. Don't do it. 
And that's what we are called to do with our children. If you do this, this is going to happen. God motivates him by showing him, by telling him the consequence. God does not leave him in the dark. He tells him exactly what will happen. And God is entirely truthful. So here's what I want to finish up with this morning. And much more will be said on these themes as we come to Genesis 3 and the fall and the entrance of sin into the world. But I want to just say one thing in closing this morning, and it's this. God does not leave us in the dark. Not a single person in here will be without excuse before God on that day. I was recently talking with someone who's an unbeliever, and I was talking with them about the issue of authority. And they were asking me about interpreting the Bible and how there's so many different interpretations. How can you ever really know what the Bible is about or what's true because this person interprets it this way, this person interprets it, this person interprets it that way. So someone will say to you, well, that's how you interpret it. That's how you interpret it. And here's what I said to that person. The clarity, perspicuity, the fancy word, the clarity of the scriptures is not the issue. There are, of course, many things that we disagree on or we debate and there are interpretive differences, not on those first level things, but as we work our way into scripture, many things that we are trying to wrestle with and interpret. What I said to this person was, it's not an issue of interpretation. It's not an issue of a lack of clarity. It's an issue of a, a lack of desire to submit to God's authority. The reason people don't obey the Bible is because they love themselves and they are king. It's not an issue of biblical clarity. It's an issue of biblical authority. And so I submit to you this morning, God speaks to us clearly in his word. And just as each of us will die, because we are in Adam, because our bodies come ultimately from Adam, what God has told us will happen in the future will happen in the future. God will save his people. He will raise them from the dust of the earth and give them eternal life. And he will condemn and judge in his fierce wrath all rebel sinners who disobey his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that you give us such clarity in your Bible. Thank you for making so clear to us how we are to live, who we are to trust, what Christ accomplished on the cross, and where he sits now in supreme authority. Father, thank you that you teach us so much from Genesis 1 to 3. Thank you that we get so much foundation here in these opening chapters of the Bible. Father, we pray that you would help us to look forward to that Sabbath rest that awaits the children of God. We pray, Father, that you would help us to rest now as we trust Jesus. We pray, Father, for those among us potentially who do not know you, God, that they would hear your word and they would not be self-deceived into thinking, well, that's just an interpretation, but that they will submit to your authority by submitting to your holy word. God help us as we bear your name in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.